Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Canal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Hey, crazy birds. I hope you guys are doing fantastic today. I am super, super excited about today's guest. He is a food waste campaigner who documents, exposes, and researches the extent of supermarket food waste. He's actively bringing awareness to how much perfectly good commercial food gets wasted. So during this episode, we talk about the enormity of the commercial food waste problem, how this has come to be this way, and what needs to take place to see the end of commercial food waste so that society can go on designing a more ethical, sustainable food system. So crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Matt Homewood. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mariska. I really appreciate being here and, and talking all things food waste with you. Oh, it's such an important topic and it's amazing to have you on the podcast. You've been doing some really, really great work. And that brings me to like our first question, and that is like your sustainable journey. How did that start? Well, I just grew up in London, pretty suburban upbringing and quite disconnected from nature, really. But I did play a lot of soccer. So I spent a lot of time outdoors uh, in parks. And anyway, like many young teenagers in Britain, I watched a lot of nature documentaries made by Sir David Attenborough and his massive team at the BBC. And he kind of hooked me into the natural world and and wildlife. And so that's why I decided to go study zoology at university. But before going to university in Scotland, in Edinburgh, I I traveled a bit, just living cheaply out in Southeast Asia. And I'm, yeah, because I was there for nine months, I managed to get to quite some remote spots in the world and just seeing wildlife that I just hadn't ever seen before. And yeah, Europe's a very industrialized place and a lot of a lot of the big megaphone have gone. So any of that kind of opened my eyes. And then I did this zoology degree, which is fascinating, but also slightly depressing because quickly you realize that a lot of animals and plants are going extinct because we're converting too much nature into agriculture or cities. And so, so anyway, the world's complex. So that's why I wanted to go study climate change in Denmark because it is known around the world as one of the most sustainable places on earth. And so that's why I came here. But climate change, as you know, is a very, very broad topic. So after six months of broad introduction, I narrowed down uh, onto the global food system, which made sense with my kind of biological background. And yeah, the food system has disproportionate impact on the planet and all its resources. And very quickly, I came across this statistic that between a third and half of all food is wasted on this planet. And that's not by some, some random scientists, that's by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. So yeah, 1.2 to 2 trillion kilograms of food every year. So 
huge, huge quantities. And anyway, I just realized that if you could fix food waste, could fix many of the social and environmental issues that we face today. Yeah. So that's how I kind of came to the food waste issue. And then the problem with statistics, I realized, is that it gets a little boring after a while for people. And, you know, when people listen to the words food waste, they'd probably think, you know, some rotting apples lying in a dumpster. But after some dumpster diving here in Denmark during my master's, I've realized that, you know, a lot of this food is perfectly edible and it's, it should have been sold, but it's not been sold for reasons we'll discuss. So that's when I kind of came back to social media because I quit everything. And I've, I set up this page called An Urban Harvester because I was harvesting these amazing resources found all across our cities that ought never been dumped. They should have been sold at the right price. And so, yes, I started Urban Harvester and basically using photography to try and showcase, show people just how amazing this food was, food that's sometimes traveled literally from the other side of the planet. And so, yes, yeah, so using photography to really remind people on a weekly basis of this crazy food waste happening here in Denmark. And then once the page started growing, I connected with a lot of other dumpster divers all across the Western world three in Australia, actually, uh, Skip Dippers, Char Charlie, and then someone on the page, I can't remember. Anyway, and I started sharing their work because to really show people that it's not just a Copenhagen or Denmark problem, it's a Western problem within supermarkets. Dumpster diving, like, okay, we don't even have a bed in our house. So for me, if I think about dumpster diving, it's like, whoa, I don't even like going to the garbage chute because that's why I don't have a bin in my house. So that's why I don't create trash because, you know, you've got this negative connection with it. So, you know, when was that first time that you actually went, and I'm putting it like in inverted commas, like dumpster dive. Like, can you tell us a little bit about that first experience? The thing is, I'm 28 now. And in the UK, skipping used to be part of culture. But it disappeared in Britain about 2005. So I was 13. So a bit a little too young to start dumpster diving, luckily. Yes, I wasn't, I wasn't used to dumpster diving at all because it's just not a thing. All supermarket dumpsters in Britain are kept in separate refrigerated rooms. So we don't have access to it. So I had no idea about it. But when I came to Denmark... Many people dumpster dive here. It was seriously students. It's a massive culture. So then, you know, a few friends kind of mentioned it to me. And I was a student, didn't have much money. So I thought, well, let's just tag along and see what's happening. So, of course, instead of going around the front, like we always used to, just go around the back. And the dumpsters here in Scandinavia are extremely accessible. There's no locks on the vast majority of them. What well, they used to be, no locks. That's changing a little bit, unfortunately. And that's kind of how I got introduced to dumpster diving through friends, the student community. And you just go to these dumpsters and sometimes you might not find anything. But other times, as you've seen on my photos, you might come across 180 bags of coffee or 160 bags uh, of bacon, fruit and vegetable that's absolutely pristine because, you know, one lemon out of 10 has gone off. Or wow. it's always, it's, if, when it comes to fruit and vegetables, it's often to do with the packaging because they want to sell you all these things together. That's when the problems occur because, of course, fruit and vegetables don't all go off at the same time. And so when you've, when you've got those 10 lemons inside a mesh net, one is inevitably going to go off sooner than the rest of them. But because they can't really sell you that at the moment, it seems, they dump all of them out. Me as an urban harvester around the back or a dumpster diver, 
200 lemons when in fact, you know, only 20 are off. We're talking 10%. Wow. So that's kind of how I got introduced to it. Then I cycled across America with environmental activists, Rob Greenfield and some of his friends. And there it was astonishing. I mean, from New York City on the East Coast to Minneapolis in the center, we all lived off supermarket food waste, more or less, because in America, like everything, it's just XL. And it was just unbelievable. When you get out west, it's low densely populated. So that got a little harder. But but already, you know, you're talking 2000 miles of just unbelievable supermarket food waste. And that means amazing dumpster diving. Wow. And I mean, that is really, really so sad when you think about how many people out there does not have food to eat tonight, you know? How many people's out there, children that's going hungry every single day because they don't have access to food. And here we are just like throwing all of this food away. And, you know, the amount of resources and everything that goes into producing that just to end up in a bin, for me, that is honestly so terrifying and sad. It really, it just, and it just, it makes me angry. It really, it makes me angry to think that this is going on. Completely agree with you. And I really came to this issue from an environmental perspective, very much with my background. I realize actually it's far more an economic and social justice issue because supermarkets throughout this coronavirus pandemic, their market shares all across the West have been exploding because that's where people, that's the only places where people are shopping these days. I mean, I see in Britain, you know, just, you know, profits just going through the roof Probably, I imagine, dividends, share, dividends to shareholders are doing well, too. Meanwhile, as you say, you've got millions of people who've been put into poverty just because of the pandemic. You had millions of people in poverty before the pandemic. 700 million people approximately across the world didn't know where their next meal was coming from at one moment in time in 2019. Those figures will have only gone up. So actually, it's a hugely... In, uh, humanitarian, it's much more of a humanitarian issue than it is an environmental one. And that, I think, is how we'll fix this issue because at the end of the day, a lot of people don't care about the environment for better or worse. But people do care about humanity, uh, or more so anyway. It's shocking. It's, it's so shocking. So that's why I've kind of moved away from the zero waste movement a little bit because I appreciate all those efforts. And I think it's so important that us individuals do what we can. But it's a systemic issue. Uh, you know, when, when you and I are sifting through our plastic, but then supermarkets are dumping, you know, a ton a day, there's only so much we can all do. Um, but it doesn't mean to say that we should stop. But certainly we need a far more systemic lens on this issue and, and many others. Definitely. And I mean, so you live currently in Copenhagen and, you know, it's seen as the world's greenest major city. And everything feels like it's kind of got sustainability at the top of its agenda. But then I kind of look at your social media account and I'm just like, whoa, this is painting a total different story than this like green city. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly is it when you open those bins at the supermarkets in Copenhagen? What is it that you find? It's kind of ironic because, as you say, I moved to this city and this country because of its green credential. And I got duped like many, many other people and people who continue to be duped all across the world because of 
clever marketing. And I have to say, it's been held by the Anglo-Saxon press. So the Guardian, actually more left-leaning as well, the Guardian and various publications in, in North America, who keep on saying Denmark and Scandinavia are so sustainable. These are countries we need to aspire to become like. And it's just not the case. Socially, they've achieved a lot. That's very impressive. But when it comes to the environmental side of things, it's a disaster. Well, basically, when it comes to dump diving, what have I not seen? Anything you see in a supermarket, there'll be between 1% and 10% of those products ending up in the dumpster depending on time. 10% is rare. We're talking more between 1% and 3 5%. But it depends. You know, when I come across 160 bags of bacon, probably talking more than 10% figure. And there wasn't a single price reduction sticker on any of those packets. So it's just shocking. And basically, I think Copenhagen has got this green credential because it's a very cycling-friendly city. Like a lot of European cities, it's very densely packed in together, which means a lot of people can cycle everywhere or walk or use public transport. And then it's famous for its wind energy. But I actually looked into the energy question, Denmark's energy system. I digress a bit right now, but it's interesting for people, I think, especially in Australia where there's the coal uh, issue and and these things. And actually, I was working at Greenpeace, which makes things even more ironic. But anyway, so I looked into the energy question and I looked into it because Greenpeace is so ferociously opposed to nuclear energy. I didn't really know where I stood at the time. And basically, the world thinks it's going to get its energy from wind and solar. But what happens when there's no wind or sun? Well, you need that base load. And basically, people who don't want nuclear, the only option left with no fossil fuels is biomass. But there's only so much waste coming from crops like palm oil or trees, you know, sawdust, this kind of thing. So, so what's happening now in Denmark, because no one wants nuclear, and they've got rid of all coal and gradually natural gas, they are now burning entire trees from Eastern America and the Baltic states, Estonia and Russia. And so that's what I discovered six months ago. It's not wind energy pumping this country, it's biomass mostly. And we're importing whole trees to burn. And it's, it's a long story, but basically it's because if you import trees, it's the exporting country who takes the greenhouse gas emissions under the forestry category, not the country burning it for energy. It's a loophole within the United Nations system, and it gets a little tedious. I'll write about it in the future, but it is unbelievable. And basically, it's rich nations who are frauding the system, essentially, because on paper, it looks, oh, Denmark's going green. We're doing <laughs> exactly. action. It's a nightmare. And wow. it gets worse. And this is where Australia comes in. And me too, because I thought, let's get rid of all fossil fuels tomorrow. Per unit of energy, because wood is such a low-density product compared to fossil fuels, Per unit of energy, we've got 80% more greenhouse gas emissions released than coal, or 300% more greenhouse gas emissions compared to natural gas. So, so I've become a lot more cautious about saying, let's get rid of all fossil fuels tomorrow, because actually it's more complex. And for me, biodiversity in the world's forests are equally important when it comes to climate change, because they offer great solutions. And also all these species, you know, could potentially go extinct. We'll just have monoculture yeah. forests to, to have electricity. <laughs> Crazy. I need, to, I need to look more into nuclear. But anyway, that was a massive digression. But I think it's yeah. interesting for Australians who have um, the coal debate is, is at the center of it. And 
need to be a bit more critical in our thinking, I think. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, people need to kind of look at the whole thing as well. And with coal, obviously you you do get your two different types of coal. And with the one, if we don't have that, we won't be able to make steel. So that's the other thing, you know, so then we go back to building everything with wood and then, you know, you still have loads of deforestation. So yeah, I mean, there's so many things to consider. And I think in, in the end, you need to kind of go with, you know, what is going to cost the less harm to like the entire ecosystem for now and also for future generations. So yeah, <laughs> it's quite, quite intense, but it is really phenomenal to, um, you know, obviously bringing it back to like Copenhagen and, you know, everything that that's going on there. And all of the other countries is kind of giving this green stamp and like, you know, giving you guys all stars and trying to like mimic what it is that you are doing. But if we all do that and, you know, if all of our supermarkets bins are like overflowing with food wise, is that really great for the environment? Like, I don't think so. That's the thing when it comes to Denmark and it's food waste. In Denmark, we have about 700 million kilograms of food waste in total. Consumers are responsible for about 260 million kilos, which is about 37%, which is kind of what we see in other countries. What we don't see in other countries is supermarkets wasting 163 million kilos every year, which is 23%. Thing is, there are 5.8 million people in this country, only 2,700 stores. So we're talking like orders of magnitude of difference Yet the waste is only 14% different. And as you say, if the world was to be like Scandinavia, we'd need five planets, five Earths, essentially. That's not going to happen. So we have to rein in our consumption levels. And when it comes to supermarkets and the, the business models and their food waste, we need to seriously think of alternatives. And in the short term, bring in penalties to find proper solutions to fix this food waste, i.e., what am I thinking? At the moment, clearly, it's not costing them a lot of money to, to dump all this food out to burn. That's what they happen to. Mm. They, they incinerate all this trash to produce energy. And some people think, you know, this is circular economy, you're burning trash. At least, at least it's not landfill, I suppose. But, you know, yeah. you're, bu- you're it's burning. It's still causing toxins and all of that plastic when you burn it, it does cause issues because they are definitely not opening each of those packets and like, okay, this can get composted. This can, you know, everything goes in the incinerator. And that's a great point. And I spoke to someone else about this issue just last week, a lady who's looked into a lot about the restaurant food industry, uh, the restaurant food industry's food waste here in Denmark. And she says that that's how we're going to get them. Apparently in Denmark, the law is that if you're a business, you have to separate your organic waste and your plastic, like all of us, you know, I have to, oh, wow. fra- yeah. I have to fractionate my, my trash into 10 different things, just like many of the world's citizens. Yeah. And the Danish businesses think they're above the law and they just dump it all out to burn and they get away with it. But wow. if we can actually enforce this law and, as you say, get some supermarket employees to like empty 160 bags of bacon or 180 bags of coffee, how much is that going to cost the supermarket? Well, then it will become cheaper to actually sell this food to people rather than basically inflating the prices. And by that, I mean, if you know as a store you've got 180 bags of coffee that's about to go off, 
but you had a big pe- financial penalty if, if that's to end up in the trash. But you'd make sure to sell it, no matter the loss on the product. And you drop the price in time. So you drop it hard enough and early enough to make it attractive enough for you and me, the consumer, to buy that product. The world's not vegan. The world doesn't, hasn't stopped drinking coffee. They will buy those products. When we look at all those products, because for me, it sometimes just feel like they kind of greedy because they don't want to drop the price. They want to sell it up until the last moment to like this full price. But I've been looking at like sell by dates and all of these different dates that you have to check. And, you know, if it's past this date, you're not allowed to eat it because it's gone off. And, you know, I'm just like, do a smell test. If the stuff smells off, yeah, maybe it's off. Like, don't eat it. But most of the times you will find that, you know, it's not off. It's perfectly fine for you to eat. If you can start buying your groceries, and I mean, especially people that is really struggling at the moment, you know, if I can buy a bag of coffee for 25% of the price, I would definitely buy it. I wouldn't care that the sell-by date was yesterday or the day before. It should still be good. And I mean, there's ways how we can actually preserve the food as well to make it last longer. You know, like, I mean, with that, all those bacon, I'm sure you could if you had a massive freezer, you know, freeze it and, and still have it for such a long time. So there's so many ways that we can actually make use of it. Absolutely. I think there has to be a massive reevaluation of how our nation states implement all these different labeling and date systems because it's a problem. Supermarkets, to be fair to them, are required by law to often get rid of these things. Now, of course, as we've said, they could use, use the price mechanism to make sure they sell it. But at the moment, they're refusing to do that. And they have to respect the law and they have to throw away those, those foods and not just foods, all sorts of things. But so you're right, that is one angle that we need to work on uh, because we could save a lot of food. And I, I watched a documentary the other week in France and the journalist is, uh, visits these yogurt manufacturers and she kind of says, okay, so you put this date of the yogurt in about two and a half weeks, but really deep down, how long do you think your product would be fine? And so they do all these tests. And from a microbiological perspective, from bacteria, essentially, after two months beyond the sell-by date or best before date, the yogurt's absolutely fine. Not a single bad bacteria was present within the different samples. And it's because he said it's twofold, the yogurt manufacturer. He said that, number one, he can't afford that his, that his consumers don't like his products because potential loss of income. Number two, it's to keep the system rolling. Like, oh, you know, wow. he's got yogurt coming in every day. He needs, to, he needs to get rid of that. And so you need a slightly shorter time span to make sure that, you know, the wheels of capitalism can continue rolling along. So some massive issues we face, but certainly we need to come back to our senses, use all five of those senses and get real about food waste because, yeah, we're literally devouring the planet and it's scary the pace at which that's happening. So we need to get real. And I mean, you collect so much food. Like I've seen some of these things. I mean, a few weeks ago, you were literally drowning in cow cream. (laughs) And I urge all of our crazy birds, I'm going to link that photo in the show notes as well so that they can see that I'm not crazy. Um, So what do you do with all of this food? How many cow cream can one person use? So that was just after Christmas. 
after those kind of seasonal holidays, I, I almost, my, my heart sinks because I know it's going to be massive work. So sure enough, on the 27th, when the Christmas, uh, when the stores start opening up after Christmas, I do the rounds, I go check the local dumpsters. There was this one particular place where I was 200 meters away and I could see the bin. It wasn't closed. It was just half, it was half open. There was so much cream, they just couldn't close the lid. And I could wow. see it was just a mountain. And I just, I just thought, oh my God, this is insane. So then I, I start walking towards it. I just can't believe it. But I almost kind of expect it too. Uh, anyway, so I get there and basically bin number one, whole dumpster full of cow cream. Go next door. You've got your flowers from Ethiopia. You've got your prawns from Greenland. You've got all your fruit and veg from South Europe. Then underneath the, the bottom half of that second dumpster was all, also full of cow cream. And I've now discovered by LinkedIn, basically it was a supermarket ploy to sell this cream, each packet for about half, uh, about 30 Aussie cents. So nothing. It was a ploy to get the consumer in, really good offer. They'll buy the Christmas cream and then they'll buy the other things and we'll make a profit like that. Because obviously all the supermarket stores are competing against each other for the Christmas bumper purchases. And so that's what's happened. And so wow. I had about 800 creams there. But yeah, as you said, I can't drive. <laughs> I just had my license, unfortunately. I'm yeah, not Because you, you have only a bicycle with two baskets. So yeah, first of all, how do you get that home? And then, you know, secondly, what do you do with 800 <laughs> like containers of cream? Well, that's why my heart drops because I kind of expect it to happen. And I get there and basically I knew it was going to be a big one. So I brought my massive, you know, 90 liter backpack. I've got Scandinavia being Scandinavia. I've got three massive Ikea blue bags. And then I've got my two baskets at the front and back of my bicycle. And then I've got my handles where I can put some extra bags. It's a massive job. And basically I've worked out that my limit is 50 kilos at a time, all in across my bike and myself. And that time I had to go three times. So I brought back 153 kilos of cream, 305. And I've got to go up four flights of stairs. There's no lifts anywhere here. And it was so knackering. But I had to bring it back and I stored it in my lounge. Luckily, my partner is very understanding with my mission. And <laughs> over the next two days, I did a lot of documenting with video and photography. I'm setting up my website now. So I needed to make sure that all the, the footage was good enough for that. And that was it. But it was a crazy job. It was, it was three tons of carbon dioxide emissions, essentially, from those oh 100, 153 kilos, for example. That's one that I worked at. So a massive, massive job. But it's worth it because this is yeah. just one store out of 2,700 in this country, 25,000 in the UK. 40,000 yeah. USA. So like the epidemics all across the West. So, so I have to get that evidence, show people and the media that it's just, yeah, we have to solve this. But yeah, yeah it's a massive job. Massive. But then what, what do you then typically would do with the food? Like, are there people that you can give it to? Or do you have like a hidden bunker that's full of cream? <laughs> Where does it go? That's where it gets even more farcical. According to Danish law, I'm not allowed to give any of this food out away to people I don't know. So unless I've got friends or family, it's illegal. I, I face a 1500 Aussie dollar fine, so about 1200 US dollars, 
if I were caught giving that food out. I know other people who've been caught and, and they've had to pay that fine. So, so unfortunately, I give no food out. All that cream went all back in the trash. So I'm a hypocrite like the supermarkets, but I hope to bring in legislation to end it where supermarkets just want to continue this business as usual. But So I do feel bad about that. But I can't jeopardize. I mean, already I'm skin, so I can't. I can't just. Has this encouraged you to make many more friends that you know you've got on that group of people? Like, I mean, here we've got like an amazing group, which is like the buy nothing group. If someone's got like half of a Christmas cake and they know they're not going to finish it, then they would post it on the group and like they're like, guys, half a Christmas cake, who wants it? And then there'll be like five people like, oh, I'll come and pick it up. And it's typically a group that is within your suburb where you stay. So you'll join it. So then it's easy for you to just like go. I mean, we've had so many people, so many stuff that we no longer need for our house and everything found like a really great home because there is always people that want stuff but now you've got kind of this platform to give it to people so that's great so I yeah maybe maybe make more friends and like have it in the circle I know it's something I need to work on I mean I, I have I have befriended all my neighbors there's about 10 flats here in my building so whenever I've got excess, I try and I try my best to give out all the coffee and the fruit and veg. I don't give out meat or shellfish because it's too risky with uh, you don't know how long it's been out. So I, I don't eat it. So I, I wouldn't give it to other people. But yeah, when it comes to other goods that are more, yeah, when I'm certain that they're edible, I do try my best to give it out to, to friends and to neighbors and some friends nearby. But yeah, it's a big problem. But my, my project isn't a food re- redistribution project because there are a lot of uh, organizations in Denmark who do that. And actually, I want to bring up a three, three points because here in Denmark, and to be fair, across the West, we have been sold three solutions to the supermarket food waste angle. Because as we've said, there's a consumer angle. We need to work on that. We're literally chucking our money out the window. It's insane. So that we need to work on. But from the supermarket food waste angle, in Denmark, uh, there's this social supermarket called WeFood, six of them now in the country, set up in 2016, so five years ago, where basically supermarkets have teamed up with this uh, Christian organization to solve supermarket food waste. So, so supermarkets give a small percentage of what they're dumping to, to these stores. They've had national coverage. They've had massive international coverage, 200 volunteers every month, 15 hours each. So they've got the free labor too. Anyway, after five years, you'd have thought they'd have made massive inroads to solving this. Turns out the data is for 2020, 350,000 kilos. So 0.2% of total supermarket food waste compared to that 163 million. The food banks, uh, again, all volunteers. So well-meaning people giving up their time outside, you know, full-time careers, not the supermarkets paying. That's where I insist on this. 1.3 million kilos they managed to save last year, only 0.8%. So those two kind of social enterprises, you're talking 1% of total supermarket food waste. It's barely lifting the needle. I know. It is disheartening, but I try and not sound too cold-hearted because I don't want to sound like (laughs) an idiot. But it's important 
to solve this because yes, one percent is nothing. And then the other angle we're always sold is you know tech's going to save the world, and so that's where this app called Too Good to Go steps in. I know in Australia you've got a different app called Bring Me Home. Uh, I don't know if you've come across that, but yeah, Too Good to Go didn't work out in Australia, but Bring Me Home basically yeah. This app teams up with local bakeries or cafes, and you as a consumer can go get a loaf of bread for $1 instead of $3. So you get a good deal. The bakery manages to sell a bit of extra. Uh, so I think for bakeries, that whole app system can work fabulously. But for supermarkets, they've had a lot of press again about they're going to solve food waste. It's too good to go. I look at the data, look at the fine print, especially because the devil is always in the detail. and they cap the number of bags they sell, the two good-to-go bags, to 4.5 a day. And meanwhile, the bag and the dumpsters still completely full. So clearly the economics from the supermarket's perspective isn't attractive. And it's because, so you've got $12 of goods, two good-to-go force the supermarket to sell it for $4. And from the $4, the company, two good-to-go, take $1.10 in commission, fixed commission, for every bag. So the supermarket is looking at a 76% discount. And clearly for supermarkets, that's not acceptable. So they do a little yeah. bit, get massive uh, coverage from the media, all that greenwashing nonsense and the business. Yeah, the nightmare continues. So, so exactly. anyway, I'm glad I've discovered all that because <laughs> we need to hit them hard. Yeah, exactly. Now that more people are becoming aware of the issues with all of this food waste from supermarkets, what has been the feedback that you've been getting on this? People are shocked. People are shocked. And they're so shocked that it keeps happening. Two years. I started at Urban Harvest in January 2019. The page has now more or less reached 14,000 people. It's been very hard work because Instagram is, is a bit funny with environmental and slightly political topics but anyways it's what it is we've reached that but it's been positive on the whole from the followers perspective they're shocked at just how much perfect food there is and then you've got the animal rights perspective you've got the humanitarian perspective as we said you've got the climate crisis the ecological crisis so all these things and the pandemic you'd have thought in a pandemic that these companies would have done the right thing no exactly. not at all the food waste has just stayed exactly the same level. So clearly these companies don't give a damn about you or me or any other consumers. They just care about the bottom line and good business. Yeah, because I mean, during COVID, there's quite a lot of stuff that, that obviously went on. When the lockdowns and things started, a lot of people went and like ransacked. I mean, we had the toilet paper issue. There was other other baking supplies got out of stock. Um, you know, so so all of those shortages kind of happened. And I think a lot of the supermarkets also had like an oversupply sometimes as well, because, you know, who knows how much they're going to sell during this. Did you see during COVID that the waste was a little bit more than usual or was it kind of still the same? Well, actually, uh, as you know, because you're working with Rob Greenfield also, I was with Rob initially and then I stayed on with his friends in Amsterdam. So I wasn't actually in Denmark for the crazy eight-week period of you know March to end of April where, yeah, all the supermarkets were empty. Well, they were empty in Amsterdam. It was crazy. But 
So I can't actually comment on what the bins were like. But since April, or well, end of April, when I came back to Denmark, it's been business as usual, absolutely the same. And I've joined a lot of Facebook groups because I'm not on Facebook really, but I've, I've set up an account just to join these national Danish uh, dumpster diving groups with people who don't really care so much about the environment. They're very much, you know, freegans. They, they want to save as much money as possible, which is commendable for sure. Some of the photos they put, you wouldn't believe it. And now it's been really cemented in my mind, this national pandemic of food waste, a national epidemic of food waste. Yeah, so no is the answer. Nothing's changed. And the oversupply, remember, if we get the price right to sell those goods at the right price, oversupply in a way is uh, a social construct. Uh, exactly. Because yeah, you know, back in the day when farmers used to come to market uh, market their goods in towns, in the squares, well, they're not going to bring back five tons of potato after the market on their horse or however they used to, or donkey they used, however they used to transport their goods back in the day. They just sold it, and that price would have probably dropped when they realized they had way too many spuds. Well, right now, supermarkets are doing the same thing, but thanks to some government collusion enabling them to, to dump all this around the back, they're allowed to, to, to profit off the working middle class's backs. And, and as we've said, it's happening in Australia. I mean, I've seen it crazy scenes in Adelaide and Melbourne. Wow. No, that's insane. And I mean, you've just mentioned Rob, and he actually did dumpster diving for like one year where he only ate whatever came out of the dumpster. And it's amazing to think that in one year, he didn't buy anything. So it's kind of encouraging as well to think that, you know, you can actually find ways like, you know, if you really can't afford food, there is ways how you can actually start dumpster diving and, you know, find places where you can get some food. Obviously, we need to change the system, but if it's there, then people can still get it. So what advice can you kind of give people that, you know, want to start to be an urban harvester or like a dumpster diver? I think the best place to start is by Googling, you know, say you're in Brisbane, you know, just put dumpster diving or skipping Brisbane Facebook groups or community groups because there'll be active members wherever you find yourself in the world. In the world. That's how you find some people and some local knowledge. Secondly, I always recommend people to look up the legislation because that varies considerably depending on where you find yourself in the world. And a lot of countries consider their trash private property. And that means that if you're caught, you can, you can face prosecution, serious fines, potential imprisonment. Probably not going to happen, but I mentioned that because, you know, I don't want people to go to jail because I told them I'll go dumpster dive. So I, be careful. Don't take unnecessary risks. But if you're still keen to dumpster dive, honestly, look up your local groups and then just get a good pair of gloves, a flashlight, and go around your stores where you normally shop. But, you know, go on detective mode and go investigate and that's, around that's the obviously at night right not during the day when the stores open and the security is there and you're like hey just picking up some food mate <laughs> it depends actually which country in scandinavia there's no security so i go all day i, I saw in a oh, facebook wow. group the guy said someone said oh so when do you go dumpster diving people and you be the guy replies i go whenever it suits me so, <laughs> <laughs> so you can go for whenever you want really depending on the country oh. In the US, yeah. I, I dive during the day and in the evening. It's a little less creepy in the 
during the day. But in the evening, of course, you probably get a little more. You get more miscellaneous goods like maybe coconut oil, peanut butter, just more kind of exotic items and more expensive. Fruit and veg are the best during the day. So now we've kind of looked at, you know, when you want to go dumpster diving, but also what advice can you give these supermarkets or, you know, food suppliers to actually avoid this waste? It's a difficult one. Sometimes I'm hopeful and I think we can reform. But sometimes I just think these models are just so embedded into their ways of life. I think it will be difficult. But one concrete example, for example, we talk about mesh nets when it comes to citrus fruits. If they could find an alternative to the mesh net solution of what packaging, that would be amazing for the citrus fruit, citrus fruit food waste levels. But, you know, I just I just don't believe in a global food system anymore. I mean, I looked at I watched a banana documentary the other day and, you know, eight percent of bananas are wasted on the farm in Ecuador before they even start their transportation process across an ocean to get to Europe. So eight percent of the farm, then you're talking probably 10 percent, you know, as they travel six, seven thousand kilometers and, and slowly ripen. Then you've got the supermarket food waste. I've heard people talk about maybe 30 to 40 to sometimes 60% of food waste, depending on the tropical fruit, if you're in a temperate, temperate country. So how we think it's okay to, to transport all these highly perishable foods is, is, is not acceptable, really. And now we've got the data, we've got the evidence that, you know, the food waste levels are just through the roof. We just can't continue. Yeah. So I try... But more plant-rich, not plant-based, but plant-rich diet with local seasonal foods. So that does include some animal products if I'm in northern Europe where, you know, it's a harsh, harsh climate. And it all depends where you find yourself in the world. But just shipping all this food all across the planet is just so wildly inefficient. Exactly. And I mean, check out what's local and check what's in season. Because when I was living in Dubai, you know, you could literally get anything anytime. Because if you wanted strawberries, they would just purchase it from a different country where it was in season. So it's all year around. You would get everything. So it's things like that. Look at look at what's in season and start to know the seasons. And, you know, that's when you'll realize, oh, I actually don't get cherries all year round. It's just a certain time. And then when it comes to that time, then you're kind of like, oh, it's cherry time. You know, let's have cherry pies and have cherry this and this so that you can actually embrace it as well and not just um, kind of be like oblivious about all of these things and also try and grow stuff yourself because then you can see how hard it is to actually keep some of these stuff alive <laughs> and you'll get so much more respect for these farmers and also the whole process that goes behind it so that the next time when you do want to throw out a tomato or cucumber you know exactly how much work it took and how much resources it took to make it that you will probably not let it go off in the first place. It's exactly right. I mean, we've lost massive respect for, for our food. I mean, we as a society cook less and less, about 50% less compared to what we did in the 70s. And then we spend a lot less. I think in the USA, people in the 60s used to spend 18% of their disposable income on, on food. Today, you're looking at 10%. And, you know, who can afford to produce when people are only spending 10%? Well, it's the big, crazy, 
farmers who are using practices that are really destroying our soil. So if you can spend a little more on food, you'll probably get more interesting, fresher, more nutritious food from farmers who have often done a better job for, for the planet and, and the people they're, they're delivering foods to. So if you have a local, food, uh, local farmer's market or a community-supported agricultural scheme, and these yeah. vary depending on where you, where you find yourselves on, on the planet. But, but yeah, there are many, many alternatives out there. And the internet obviously allows an ever greater number of solutions, which is a great thing. Uh, so just really do your research and you'll find many alternatives and you can duck out the supermarket food system. And I mentioned to you earlier that, for example, I have looked into bread. Bread's an integral part of the Western civilization. I knew nothing about it until I started this project. And I started thinking, okay, what is flour? And then I discovered about wheat and all these different wheats. And so I just started Googling. I said, okay, so you've got wheat grain. How do you make flour? Okay, you have to have a mill. Can you have a mill for your home? And yeah, sure enough, you can buy home mills for like between two and $500 these days. But you can have a mill for 20, 20 year warranty. And so now I've got a mill and I'll buy all my grain from the local farmer. And so I only make, I only mill flour when I want to bake bread or pancakes. And oh, wow. Yeah, that's meant I can, I can drop out the supermarket wheat economy and it's not cost me any more money apart from that initial investment. That's, and not only just money, you know, the food is amazing. It's so tasty. It's so nutritious. It's, I'm so connected to, to the staff oh, of life. So, yeah, yeah, things and- like that. And I mean, like, we also have some bulk food stores here and they have like a little mill that's right there that you can use. So you can buy whatever, you know, you want to buy from them. And if you want to like mill your oats or, you know, some whatever it is that you want milled, you can do it right there in their store. So they kind of help that not every person has to buy their own mill. But if you want it freshly milled, you know, come into the store, fill up your bulk um, jar and, you know, obviously pay for it. And then you put it through the mill. That's awesome. I had not known. I knew of one example in Germany. I have never come across a mill in store. And I think it's a great idea. It's a great way of getting that regular customer return to to buy all their various products, but also come to use the mill. So for me, as a store... It's a no-brainer. Yeah, so it's amazing that, you know, more companies is actually doing this. So we've obviously talked about all of this waste that's being generated, but if you were to, like, kind of design a more ethical and sustainable food system, how do we do that? It's difficult. I think the, the commodification of the land, I mean, that is difficult because so many farmers are so in debt. It's, it's difficult for our generation to enter the agricultural industry without you know, having to have all these tractors and and it's a nightmare i would never enter that so we need different models and we'll probably need system and in, inspiring individuals to force that change but yeah we need smaller base farming with way more diversity on the farm you know perhaps you know small flocks of diverse species that are allowing for those more circular closed systems on the farm Agroecology is probably the most exciting movement within that sustainable food system. And the United Nations are writing a lot about it these days, well, the FAO especially. And so, uh, yeah, if people are interested in that, I really would look around on agroecology and look up academic journals, 
because there's so much, yeah, there's a lot of academics working on that and it's going to become a much more mainstream movement within a few years, I think. And the country that's faced the biggest agricultural transition in modern times is Cuba because they used to be highly dependent on the Soviet Union for uh, the communist regime for, for imports of fertilizer and pesticide and tractors. But when they collapsed and then the USA you know, made the, the embargo much more tough, well, basically, Cuba's trade dropped by 85%. They had no more imports for their food system, which was just like us, you know, monoculture, industrial, all these inputs, all these chemicals. So within five, six years after the government's special period, they managed to transition their food system to one based on agroecology. So you, all the fruits and veg more or less are grown in cities where most people live. Havana, Organoponicos, they're called, so urban farms, basically. And then in the country, you've got uh, oxen. So the animals, draft animals, but of course they, they poop. So you've got some compost there. They love grass, so they'll eat their herbicide, essentially. You don't have to pay any company, no mega, not, no multinational to buy the oxen. It's all local communities. And you've got all, you know, cover crop systems, rotations, no tillage. So you, these more traditional forms of farming which is what we'll have to go back to if, if we want to live in line with with how the earth wants us to live so so cuba is a fascinating example for a country that has has made it and well i mean when we went to cuba so that was quite a few years ago i was amazed that you know you would go to the supermarket and you would kind of have all of these different little pop-up shops like just randomly in between the um, the streets and the one would be like the eggs, the egg store and you would buy your eggs there. The other one would be like the bakery where you buy all your bread there. And if you go to a supermarket, they literally only sold what they had. Maybe to this day, they got like plastic water bottles in and you'll have like two or three aisles full of plastic water bottles and, you know, little bits and pieces. So, you know, if you really want to have that experience that what we have when you go to a supermarket, it's really going to take you some time to, you know, find stuff. Like we, for example, wanted to buy milk because our milk ran out probably after day three or four. We we really struggled to find milk because like none of the local stores had milk. We had to go to another store, like kind of a hotel little store. And that was the only place that we could find milk. So, you know, when when we do go to some of these restaurants and you had like a really amazing meal, I just appreciated it so much more because I knew getting these ingredients was not like back home where, you know, it's super easy. So it's really great to know that, you know, a lot of them, especially with the fruits and vegetables, that was like a little bit more widely available. But other stuff, it was really hard to find. And was that just cow milk or was that plant-based milk? Yeah, that was cow's Um, milk. So it was, yeah, so it was for my husband and my sister. And yeah, so they had to have some black coffee for a few days. Well, yeah. Which I'm fine because... (laughs) <laughs> I suppose that's Cuba, though, isn't it? It's a very tropical island. Maybe, you know, the dairy industry isn't quite so suitable to, to such a warm climate. Maybe the grasses aren't quite as prolific and, and maybe milk isn't just quite as a popular commodity as it is here in, in other Western countries. Exactly. Well, there's loads of rum, so... <laughs> 
yeah it goes to show we'll probably have to alter our our expectations you know unfortunately supermarkets also operate the way they do because it seems that consumers expect to have this overabundance and oversupply of everything and so perhaps we'll have to start cooking a bit more from scratch and start accepting different ways of living so, uh, Matt, what has been one of your most important decisions that you've made around Mama Earth? Starting this food waste mission because it's been immensely rewarding to connect with a lot of like-minded people, you know, start talking about this issue on podcasts and media and, yeah, a lot of self-growth and self-development. I'm building a website right now. I've had to learn a lot of new skills, really go out my comfort zone. So that's been amazing on a personal level otherwise when it comes to like an actual decision buying this meal and dropping out that supermarket meat economy and discoveries out it amazing awesome well now we are going to move into our final five so the first one is what is one social media account or publication that you follow i follow this amazing swedish mom called madeleine uh and economy, and she's a dumpster diver with two kids and she's a bloody hero. She comes back with like half the store sometimes and she just lays it all out. She does so much work. So yeah, massively inspiring that lady. Oh, awesome. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? Just a more just and equitable and sustainable system so that, yeah, the whole planet can, can thrive again. Awesome. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth? Start cooking more uh, from scratch if you have the time and the money. And yeah, just connect yourself to food and start questioning all things related to food because it'll be a journey throughout your life and it will bring a lot of rewards. Awesome. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people not yet on a sustainable journey? The fact that we waste between half and a third of all food produced on this planet, that kind of makes people pretty shocked pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely thinking um, about throwing out food less often, I'm sure. And where can people find you? So Instagram's the main page. If you want a more formal discussion packed LinkedIn, so Matt Homewood, Food Waste Campaigner. And then I'm building my website now to get away all from social media to actually have resources available to people in depth at all times. So that's going to be just matthomewood.com. And there'll be all sorts of topics there. Oh, cool. Well, I for a moment actually thought you were going to say in a dumpster in Copenhagen. Yeah. Um, but we'll find you online. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> in a dumpster in Copenhagen. That is definitely a guarantee. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You've been a super fantastic uh, guest and I'm sure we're gonna see many more amazing stuff from you and it's just great to actually bring more awareness to something that's so important and I definitely hope that our crazy birds is going to think about their food waste and also encourage their supermarket to put stuff on discount or just like totally avoid going to the supermarket and support your local farmers and your local stores that's actually making a difference i couldn't have ended it myself any better that's exactly it and then uh, yeah also supermarkets why are you only putting a 10 percent discount we want 20 or 30 or 40 in fact and uh, they all have to change their ways so yeah put pressure or drop out as you say fantastic well thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed this conversation and we've covered all sorts so it's been fantastic 
And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guests for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the mamaearthtalk.com's website. The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast. If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes. So if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next, maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes, why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them? Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms And they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best place would probably be a DM on Instagram at Design by Mariska or pop me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday. So make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.